0: Before we get started with this episode of Strongly Connected Components today, I want to make a request. I love making this show. I love bringing these amazing interviews with these amazing mathematicians and other people like today's guests who just live mathematical lives even without being mathematicians. But in order to do this, it takes time and it takes money and I need your help if I'm going to continue doing this. This is why I've set up a Patreon page. Patreon is this wonderful service where you can, you know, chip in like a buck per episode that I put out, which which is wonderful. And, and that's exactly what I'm asking you to do today. So please head over to patreon.com slash Acme Science and toss in just like a dollar an episode so I can keep on making this wonderful mathematical show for all of you. Thank you. And now... You know, let's get to that content. Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 58, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On today's episode, I talk to Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley, Carlos Secan. We discussed the geometry of integrated circuits, how you can design a building to stay close to your grad students while staying quite far away from the nuclear reactors, how mathematical art can inspire computer programs, which can then inspire more mathematical art, and how you can create art and yet not be an artist, instead be an engineer and a designer. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's episode was a professor of Computer Science at the University of California, Berkeley for 37 years and is now a professor emeritus. I, and I'm speaking today with Carlos Secan. Hello, Carlos. Welcome to the show. Hi,
1: Samuel. It's uh, very good to be on that show and I'm, I'm looking forward to the interview.
0: I, so I was, I was watching a video of a talk that you gave. And you mentioned that uh, very early on, you you had become fascinated with geometry. Uh, what was it about uh, geometry that, that kind of drew you towards it?
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Swiss. I grew up in uh, Basel, Switzerland. And that's the hometown of Euler and Bernoulli. And actually, I took some of my math lessons in the very same institutions where these uh, very famous guys have taught 300 and 400 years earlier. And I attended the Mathematisch Naturwissenschaftliche Gymnasium which is a um, grammar school that focuses specifically on science and mathematics and so I really was into geometry it started out with you know triangle constructions you know from two sides and then angles and all of that and then went all the way through um, descriptive geometry which we had you know in 11th grade and um, I was good at it and I really enjoyed it and so I guess geometry has been in all the things I ever did and whatever appointment or job I had, I always found the uh, the geometry component.
0: You then went on to uh, study your degree, I believe, was in experimental physics, and you became a computer engineer as well. How did, uh, could you give me some specifics of, of how geometry influenced you in, in those areas?
1: Yeah, so, you know, geometry has many different um, applications, and physics has many different domains, and there are some domains where they overlap, particularly in, in optics, it's a very geometrical thing, but also in, in mechanics, you know, geometry plays an important role with linkages and the way things move. Yeah, that's kind of um, where I, I majored in because, I, you know, physics was really a, a lot of fun. And originally, I had hopes to become the next Einstein and figure out, you know, how uh, cosmology works and what holds the universe together, except that's a very difficult field of geometry. And when those um, matrices and tensors started to have more than three indices, I realized that wasn't quite where I wanted to go. And so I settled for experimental physics, where I had some control over my experiments and most of the things I needed were on my desk. And then, based on that, I um, got my PhD in um, semiconductor physics and I made it to Bell Labs. I was lucky enough to get into the group that just a few months earlier had invented charge coupled devices. And um, that was really a lucky break. So in uh, the next four or five years we went from just demonstrating the principle all the way to the first solid state camera that was compatible with the resolution of American uh, television. And my job was pretty much on the geometry side. I was laying out you know this chip that had almost a million electrodes and you know the corresponding driving uh, circuitry around it. And I let other people worry about exactly what the electrons did and so on. I was really happy with the layout and the integrated circuit um, design. And then I came because of the fame I got in in that field. um, I was invited for a year to come to Berkeley as a visitor. And then they liked me and I liked it. So I stayed. And then again, for the next almost 10 years, I worked on computer aided design tools for integrated circuits and mostly i was again focusing on the two dimensional layout of those circuits and how to put all the components together as tightly packed as possible and you know make sure that you know didn't have sensitive components next to one another where the electromagnetic field could um, have any disturbing influence so geometry was right in the middle and center of most of the assignments and the research projects i had for for many years
0: uh, that's that's one area that until I started looking into interviewing you, I didn't really think of as, as something where geometry would be so important. I mean, it makes sense when you when I think about it logically, but laying out. Out these chips. Uh, so, what actually goes into uh, when you are when you are planning where to put everything onto an integrated circuit? Like, what what's the actual process for for figuring everything out?
1: Well, I mean, in some sense, you have just an, um, a circuit diagram or you know a systems diagram that tells you what all the components are that you need and how they're connected, and that can be an, a horrible jumble, you know, on on some paper. Now you want to put that down on a small piece of silicon. The real estate is really, really precious, and you want to make sure you have all the communications line as direct and as short as possible, and avoid bad crossings and avoid the kind of knots where you stack, you know, multiple layers on top of one another. Ideally, you try to do the whole layout with just two or maybe three layers of communication. So there's a lot of of, of this juggling around. Now until maybe the 1970s or so the circuits were small enough people could readily do that by hand now you know in the 80s then the chips started to have you know many tens of thousands of components and it was simply no longer possible to do it manually and so then we started to work on programs that would try statistically to move components around and make small incremental improvements with every move, so that in the end you would have as tightly packed a circuit as possible. You know, and some of the techniques used were simulated annealing, where it's almost like jiggling things around, you know, and gradually let them cool down so they fall in the lowest energy state. Others were uh, called um, uh, genetic algorithms, where you had competing circuits that try to improve themselves and then you would see which ones are the best and you would combine the best features of some of the um, the best proponents and then try to um, basically make them and then combine those features and make even better layouts from them and repeat that uh, through a few generations so there's a lot of geometry and a lot of computer search involved in actually uh, laying out these chips
0: now this is generally an interview show uh, about mathematics. And so far, while we have been talking a little bit about mathematics, hasn't been hasn't been directly uh, involved with. In but But don't worry, listeners, we're getting there. As a matter of fact, we're going to get there right now. Uh, when I asked you about uh, the mathematical art, which is what brought me to uh, to your name in, in the first place. And so I was, I was wondering, how did you get involved with starting to do some mathematical pieces of art?
1: Yeah, there's sort of... um. Multiple steps before I got there. So after doing 10 years worth of integrated circuit layout, everything was essentially two-dimensional, or maybe a couple of layers in two dimensions, and um, it got maybe a little tired. And then we needed a new computer science building. Okay, and I'm sitting here in uh, Soda Hall, which is the home of computer science in, uh, at UC Berkeley. And suddenly I had this three-dimensional problem. Now we have, you know, we have rooms and we have, you know. Um, certain rooms that you want to be close to, you want to be close to your graduate students, and you want to be close to your secretaries, but you want to be maybe far away from the nuclear reactor or, or from the student menza. And so it's a three-dimensional layout problem. You know, how do we pack, you know, the maximum number of offices in a very limited space and organize everything so the traffic flow is, is kind of optimal? And suddenly, I was going from two dimensions to three dimensions and had some really great students like you know, Seth Teller and uh, Tom Funkhauser, and they created essentially almost manually a three-dimensional model of the building that we, um, we were planning to build and then they created a computer program that could interactively walk through that building in, in real time. So you could steer this virtual camera and look through the building and explore how everything was connected and what you would see as you turn the corner from the corridor into the elevator lobby and the like. And uh, that was really pioneering work. And some of the algorithms that these uh, students have come up with, that's what you find today in uh, you know, most of the video games. So suddenly I was now very heavily involved in, into three-dimensional stuff. A little later, I started to team up uh, with uh, Paul Wright and other professors in mechanical engineering. And there were even more challenging three-dimensional problems when it comes to machining complicated three-dimensional surfaces. For instance, one of the exercises I had some of my students do is look at the classical two-dimensional yin-yang symbol you know, the, 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 two kind of the, S, the, the circle divided by an S shape in the middle. And I asked them, okay, now do this in 3D. And the idea was to uh, take a sphere and somehow split it into two halves that ideally would be mirror images of one another and had some nice curvy, partly cylindrical, partly spherical cutting um, plane in between. So it was one exercise to design that on a computer, then it was a completely different job, now going onto a numerically controlled milling machine and trying to actually mill one of those parts because, in order to mill a nice, smooth surface, you really have to be very careful how you move the the drill head of the of the milling machine in just the right angle at the right speed and with you know close enough path so you don't get too much scalloping. And so, for several years, I was working with these mechanical engineers in doing uh, what we called cyber cut, basically using uh, the advanced information technology and the best of computer science in order to get the best possible results in cutting some artificial complicated shape out of a solid piece of metal. And then, that was like the middle of the 1990s, suddenly these rapid prototyping machines started to come along. Now, they have a completely different way of creating objects, because they're building it up layer by layer. Some of them just deposit some ABS plastic or so that's like toothpaste oozing out of a toothpaste tube and they just kind of drape that in meandering back and forth path, gradually building up one layer on top of another one. Others basically put down some plaster powder and then selectively dribble some glue in it where they want to create the, uh, the final part and everything that's not glued together can later be just kind of brushed away or blown away. So this is what we call layered manufacturing, and we call that cyber build. So again, we used informatics and computer science to create programs to make these complicated shapes that could not even be built on a classical numerically controlled milling machine because you couldn't get to the inside or into the tight nook and crannies with your tool. But here, you can build all the details one by one on top of one another, layer by layer. So suddenly I could make, you know, incredibly marvelous objects like the three dimensional Hilbert cube or the Arabic icosahedron, which is really sort of twenty trefoil knots all tightly interlocking all the ways so you would have in a an an Arabic or so um, wood screen on the windows. And before I knew it, the kind of objects we were generating started to look more and more like artistic shapes rather than just useful Parts like you know a crankshaft or a, a box with rounded corners, and before I knew it, I had sort of drifted from uh, utilitarian kind of shapes into these more artistic shapes.
0: So you started making these these artistic shapes. When did you when did you realize that this was something that you really wanted to uh, to pursue to really start making? real it, incredibly interesting and, and beautiful pieces of art and and art that you could then display or or you know install uh in you know various places
1: i think uh, that trend also has its roots in my um high school um, years um at that time i really was enamored with the alexander calder mobile, um and their you know his other sculptures I also uh, was impressed by um, Max Bill who is a Swiss sculptor who did very simple and wonderful uh, geometric forms like you know it's just giant mobius bands you know carved out of granite Naum Gabo is another of the uh, of the artists who I I knew mostly from museums and uh, and from uh, you know pictures I saw in books that had these um, very geometrically looking uh, string sculptures so even then, I already had an interest in in art, particularly in abstract in geometrical art. And I think that stayed with me. And so on and off i I did smaller projects you know of of that kind. And now suddenly, when I was doing these new shapes with rapid prototyping machines and before that with numerically controlled milling machines, I realised I could make these wonderful shapes now something that I might not be able to do by hand and having much more complicated shapes that I could think of in my head but you know, uh, and now I couldn't actually realize them. And so suddenly uh, these two worlds started to come together. I think if I have to really put the date down when, when, when things really clicked must have been around 1994. At that time I came across issue of um, Leonardo. Leonardo is a a journal that essentially combines mathematics and art and, and technology, and uh, has this sort of interdisciplinary mix of, of articles about that subject, and they had a special issue, uh, it called something like the um, the Visual Mind, and in there were various um, contributions specifically about mathematically oriented sculpture. Uh, George Francis, who is a professor at the University in Illinois, he analyzed the work by one Brent Collins. Brent Collins is a wood sculptor living in uh, Gower, Missouri. That's about half an hour uh, north of Kansas City. And he has no mathematical training, but many of the shapes that he carved were looking like minimal surfaces. Those are the kind of shapes that Soap bubbles take on when you when you dip a crooked wire into you know a soap solution and pull it out, you get this very nice curved saddle surface that tries to minimize the total surface area in order to conserve energy. It's all the pulling of the molecules that make up that surface that very quickly establishes that particular shape. And it looks very nice and graceful. So Brent Collins was clearly inspired by these kind of shapes and was carving out of solid wood you know stacks of these tunnels and saddles in a very intricate manner, you know, capturing you know some of that uh, you know geometrical beauty. And in '94, when I when I saw that article, and then later I heard a talk by somebody else referencing Brent Collins's work, I was really so blown away by these wonderful shapes, and suddenly realised um, this connection now between some classical. Minimal surfaces. In particular, there is um, Shirk's second minimal surface. So, Mr. Shirk discovered this new kind of shape that had all the properties of a, a soap bubble um, shape about 1850. And much of Brent's work could be understood essentially as deviations from that classical Shirk's minimal surface. Some of it were just stacks of them, like a long cylinder, but then with a longitudinal twist. Others could be understood as taking such a, as I call it, shirk tower, bending it into a loop so it it bites back into its own tail and suddenly you have this toroidal, twisted, warped ring coming back into itself. And Brent Collins had made one of those shapes at that time. He called it the hyperbolic hexagon because there were six of those uh, minimal saddles in a ring without any twist. And so it was that particular shape that prompted me to pick up the phone, give Brent Collins a call, and I think our first uh, phone call lasted about 45 minutes. And even though we couldn't see each other and hand waving was of no use, because of interactions with um, George Francis, the professor who had analyzed his work, he had the language now to really talk about minimal surfaces and saddles and tunnels And I think we both um, had good enough geometrical imagination so that we could understand what we were talking about. Specifically, we were starting from this hyperbolic hexagon and we were wondering what would happen if we gave this Shirk tower a twist before we join it back onto itself. And we realized that if you had an odd number of stories, like seven rather than six stories, you would get something that's a single-sided surface, like a Mobius band where you could travel once around the loop and you find that when you come back you're on the other side of the saddle from where you started. And that was very exciting. Also that the edges of that sculpture, which before formed four very simple straight loops, suddenly edge number one might be merging into edge number two, edge number two into edge number three, then into four and then back into one. So suddenly the edge may actually form one or more intertwined knots. And this was all very, very intriguing mathematically, but the question is, you know, would it make any nice sculptures or not? And we started to have a phone conversation just about every week, and every time, you know, we talked for half an hour or more, and every time we came up, with about three or four new ideas that seemed very worthwhile to, to try out. But there was just no way that Brent Collins could even make models of some of these things in order to find out whether it was worth his time of two or three months to actually carve one of them out of wood. So, computer to the rescue. I then started to create what I little pompously call the Sculpture Generator 1, which is a very special purpose program written in Vanilla C uh, that could do nothing but essentially create such simple saddles stacked on top of one another into a shirk tower, give this thing some twist, and then bend into a loop. But it could do that at interactive speed. So I could readily set, I want not just two way saddles, but three way saddles, four way saddles. I want seven in a loop or nine in a loop. I want to have a twist of 360 degrees or 540 degrees. I could decide how thick the surface should be, how far the flanges would extend. And within minutes, I could create a lot of very beautiful shapes. And so then I would send some of these. Shapes to Brent Collins, and he would look at them and see whether they appealed to him and whether he felt he could actually manufacture them. And this started a collaboration that's now, let's see, 19 years old, I guess, and has been just a wonderful time. So, through this interaction with Brent Collins, I think I solidly realized I now are in the domain of doing mathematical art and creating sculptures based on computer programs that themselves were inspired by. Previous mathematical art.
0: So, uh, how how kind of has the way that you've you've been doing this, you know, changed uh, from from how you started to to where you are now?
1: So, I think in the 1990s and for the next ten years, it was very much art was at the beginning, and you know, Brent Collins was not the only artist that I had uh, for a, a productive interaction. It's just the most intense one. There's also um, Helaman Ferguson. You know, a top mathematician and a top um, sculpture person. He has created um, some wonderful uh, sculptures, for instance, here in Berkeley, up on the hill in the Mathematical Science Research Institute. He has a sculpture called The Eightfold Way, and it's really uh, the famous um, Klein quartic surface, which is a hyperbolic surface consisting of 24 heptagons all interlinked in one another to form. Sort of a, a genus-free handlebody. So for me, he's probably one of the of the greatest um, um, if you take the product of mathematical skill and artistic skills. With him, I had a lot of discussion and, and certainly got uh, influenced and, and and tried to do these kind of regular maps where I would take sort of patterns of, of polygons and map them around some higher genus handlebody that's something like a, a donut only with... More than just one hole. Another artist uh, that influenced me greatly was um, Charles Perry. He um, uh, was mostly known at the at the East Coast, and he has these wonderful bronze sculptures that are ribbon-like you know, and, and and swing in wonderful twisted way to form multiple loops. And some other sculptures are made out of uh, more tubular material, forming giant Mobius prisms that uh, twist around itself. And through all of these artists, I saw some of the work that really inspired me. I tried to understand some generating principle that would lie underneath this artwork. Then I tried to write a computer program to capture that, except I would engineer that program with additional variables that I could interactively change. And suddenly, uh, the MOBIS band would not twist just one flip, but would do three flips or five flips. And the Mobius prism wouldn't have just three sides, but would have four or five or six sides and do and correspondingly uh, different twists. So math first, and then me trying to understand it, trying to capture it in a computer program, and then with this program in place, I could now, in a relatively short time, create dozens of new shapes that seemed somehow to belong to the same family, but might actually look quite different.
0: So you've you've done... This this mathematical art in a, in a lot of different ways. You talked about uh, doing you know computer graphics. You've done these physical rapid prototyping. You've done larger scale sculpture. You've also uh, worked on buildings. What what do you feel that the the main differences are when you're working in all of these uh, different forms?
1: Yeah, people sometimes after I give a, a talk about my work, they they ask me whether I consider myself an artist. And I almost vehemently said, "No, I don't think I'm an artist, particularly not the way kind of art is being celebrated you know, two days where it seems like just having an idea and then any sort of ad hoc, first implementation is good enough just as long as it's new. But I would rather say, I'm an engineer and I'm a designer." And I think the difference between engineers and designers is not that you know big because, uh, engineers and designers, they both kind of know what their goal is, and then they work very diligently and carefully to optimize the way to ex- arrive at that goal. Like they try to find a minimal solution to have a particular functionality, or they try the most beautiful way to express a particular mathematical um, concept. In a way, when I'm working on a building and I'm sort of representing the future customer. My main concern is not just, as the architect might have as a main concern, that the building looks so beautiful that it gets onto the front cover of architecture today. No, for me, it has to work. It has to really serve the purpose that uh, we want to get out of that building, that we have the right functionality, that it's easy to get uh, to the places that you want to go, that the the right kind of rooms are adjacent to one another. And so it's really a, a geometrical design problem. And similarly when I, you know, use one of my programmes that would capture an idea by Brent Collins or Charles Perry, I could randomly just move those sliders around and always get something that, you know, is kind of intriguing. But then you bring in your, your critical um, thinking and you're looking at what you what you're generating very carefully and says, Is this really the best solution? Or if I give a little more twist or less twist, does it look better? You know, does it look too complicated and overwhelming would less be actually more in terms of art. And that's pretty much, I would say, an iterative design process that you don't get right the first time, but you work on it and you sleep over it, you come back, you work it again, you make a small model. Typically, once you have your first small model in hand, you realize, no, there are ways I can improve that. And you make maybe a second model and then you go for the real larger scale thing. So this design process, I think, is, is the same. In buildings, I'm very much concerned about, you know, sort of functionality. In this you know, purely geometrical sculptures obviously there's no intrinsic functionality so it really just has to be appealing and ideally it has to look from as many different sides as possible so it can walk around and it always looks good. And That's actually not trivial. Make an abstract geometrical sculptures that from all directions look equally good, uh, that's one of the big challenges.
0: I was watching one of the videos that you had done with the Number File crew, which was uh, featuring some Mobius bridges and Mobius buildings that you you had done. And one of them that really struck me was a Mobius bridge that had used the uh, the twist uh, to go above and, and create in kind of an integrated support for a suspension structure. And it struck me that was something where you kind of combined both of those ideas, because it was very beautiful, it was very artful, but also was uh, had, had a lot of real usability. It could function as a true bridge with, with very good support, too.
1: Uh, yes, indeed, that was very much at, at, uh, on my mind. Try to do something that clearly is a Mobius band in, in very simple and obvious terms, but that functions very simply and directly as a bridge, so you wouldn't fall off if you go halfway across the bridge <laughs> and of you're upside down. I, and uh, I think that particular model that you' mentioned to am particularly enamored, because you have a straight, flat surface on which you walk across, and then the full 180-degree twist happens in a highly curved beam that comes back to the origin. And it's perfect because halfway through, that beam is essentially vertical, where um, you get maximum strength. So it is a wonderful supporting um, arch from which you can then have stay cables down that actually support the horizontal walkway. So I think I I was very happy when I found that solution because it seems extremely practical and beautiful at the same time. I think in um, Bristol in the UK, they are in the process of building a Mobius bridge. And I've seen some pictures online. I'm not sure what the status is, how far they're gone. And first of all, it's much more difficult to see whether it's really a Möbius bridge. You have to almost kind of trace it because it makes so many weird kind of loops, you know, of the of the beam, and you also have kind of a, a return beam. And secondly, uh, I think it's it's just in a way too convoluted and too complicated. It doesn't have this very simple and natural form. Same is true with uh, Möbius buildings. When I first thought about the Möbius bridge, I heard about architects who had supposedly. Uh, created or at least designed uh, Möbius houses. I don't um, remember the names offhand, but in one instance, it's an American architect. He calls it a Möbius building, but you can look at that building for a long time, and it's it's almost impossible to see what is Möbius about it. And then there were some architects in the Netherlands. And they, they had sketched something, but it's only a sketch of some Mobius building. And clearly, there's a lot of Mobius bend and twisting in that sketch, but it isn't clear at all how this would actually be turned into a building that's practical, that was useful something. So I thought, is it possible to make, again, a very useful and practical building that clearly has a Mobius shape, but other than that, it's, it's, it's very, very functional? And I have come up with a couple of models um, that do that quite well. And again, it was try to make it as simple as possible, um, but obviously still a multi spent And then, you know, have a facade where you can actually have windows and, you know, vertical windows and uh, um, everything that you should expect in a, in a practical building like a, a large um, hotel or a large uh, business center.
0: Well, I I hope one day that uh, I can I can live live in such a wonderfully mathematical building. That would that would be truly <laughs> wonderful.
1: Yeah. So you asked me about you know my sort of transition from sort of physicist to engineer to computer nerd to CAD expert to to artist, and I think the last phase now actually has become more mathematical. So for about the last you know five maybe seven years. I've now started often on the mathematical end. Now, I do not consider myself a real mathematician. I'm always in awe when I read some mathematical papers, and after, you know, after the title already, I'm, I'm kind of lost, or latestly after, after page one. But there's some really intriguing concept in topology, and for instance, Colin Adams, which you have interviewed, is, is one of my heroes, and I absolutely love his his notebook, and he, has also, I understand, written a topology book, which I'm not familiar with, but I just learned that in the interview when I saw it online. I'm definitely going to go and get it because he has this gift of taking complex mathematical knowledge and distilling it down uh, where it's very attractive to an arbitrary, reasonably intelligent user and where ordinary people can enjoy it. I almost seem like you know the Carl Sagan of mathematics who takes these very complicated concepts and distills them down and brings them out and makes it enjoyable to the general public and in a way that has been my mission for the last you know maybe 10 or more years in particular I'm part of a conference that we have been running since 1998 it's called the Bridges conference and it's devoted to study mathematics and its connections to many other sculptural domains. In particular, say, uh, relationship between mathematics and sculpture, or puzzles, or origami and macrame. Not, as I mentioned before, but also music and dance and poetry and maybe maybe juggling and games. I mean, mathematics is everywhere when you look for it. And so what we're trying to do with this conference the mission is to make mathematics less frightening to people in general and show them there's so much more beautiful things in mathematics than what you might be exposed to in elementary school. And in particular, we'd like to capture children and show them neat stuff and then tell them, you know, this is mathematics, before they get turned off by having to do you know, arithmetic in elementary school. In these conferences, I often pick a mathematical theme and then try to explain it so that everybody gets it. As one example, there are things called a Klein bottle. Klein bottle is like a, a, a single-sided surface like a Mobius band except it doesn't have any edges. It's a closed thing and you can move along the surface and suddenly you find yourself right opposite from where you started on the inside of the Klein bottle. So there's no real inside and outside. And the question is how many Fundamentally different kind of Klein bottles do exist, and there was a paper by Haas and Hughes written about 30 years ago that essentially explains that. But you know, I couldn't understand that paper on first reading. I had to read it several times, and I gradually realized that uh, I think they're saying there are three or four different Klein bottles, and it took me many months to really figure out what was going on. And eventually, I had it down, and I. I made some very nice models on one of these rapid prototyping machines and I you know could give a talk at the Bridges conference where I could show these models and explain it all and then I, it got published in the journal Mathematics and the Arts and actually it won in, in a way a distinction because last year it was selected for an annual volume of the best writing in mathematics so I was very happy that they singled that one out because it was a a very hard job for me to first understand and and then translate it into some models that I could really do with which I could explain what was going on. In that process often it turns out when you make a good model that really explains such a mathematical concept well, it actually is very interesting and aesthetically pleasing and very often it can easily stand as a, a sculpture in its own right. And if you think about the um, San Francisco AT&T Park, where they have a giant grid that looks like a Coke bottle up there, which looks like a sculpture. Well, you know, a giant grid mimicking one of Louis Klein bottles is an even better and nicer sculpture. And so, I find myself that over the last several years, I've created uh, many little models. You know, nothing at really large scale that really explain some mathematical concept and do so by essentially making a piece of art that. In itself could stand somewhere in a, in a public place and people would marvel at oh that's kind of a neat structure and then if they dig deeper and they read maybe a little bit about the description what it is they actually get a little bit of a um, mathematical insight that comes with it
0: because again I want to thank you very much for coming on to strongly connected components today well Samuel, it
1: was really wonderful to be able to talk about my my hobby and my activities for the last several years. And I I, I just love your your interviews. So I'm looking forward to read some more of them online.
0: And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to learn more about the guest, Carlos, again, please head on over to acmescience.com where you can find a post all about this episode with some links to his wonderful art. And I do mean wonderful. Really, go look at it. It is beautiful. The music, and in fact, the new intro music is from Lowercase, and the music that I'm talking over right now is from Science Ctn. You can find both of them over at SoundCloud, uh, where you can also find a bunch of Acme Science stuff if you are uh, so inclined. If you have any feedback, want to suggest a guest for this show, uh, or you just you know want to say hey, uh, the email address is Samuel at This episode, as all episodes, are released under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license, so please feel free to you know make me say all kinds of random things as long as you said that you got the content from acmescience.com and also don't forget our patreon that's patreon.com slash acmescience where you can help me continue to make the show i want to continue making it please help put me in a position where i can do just that and as always just thank you so much for listening it really means so much when i see that so many people really do listen and and that's great and i I really don't think i have anything else to share with you this week but i do have some big news it's going to be a big announcement that is coming up and i can't wait to share it with you just give me a little bit more time and until then have a math terrific week y'all